0: Welcome back, you health renaissance people. Okay, today it's going to be exciting. Instead of talking about the insanity with vaccines and medications, we're going to have you walk by a mirror and smile. You're going to be appreciating that your body is intelligent. So we're going to have a rough overview of how the body works. Now, we've got detailed, detailed um, talks on anatomy, physiology, neurology, gastroenterology, um, every kind of subject and pathology you can imagine. But let's have a rough rough overview of this, because right now we have many epidemics that are currently going on in our country, and like an autism epidemic, dementia epidemic, Alzheimer's epidemic. Um, If you look at 70% of our kids between 17 and 24 couldn't even qualify for our all-volunteer military service, okay, because of obesity, chronic illness, disease, or mental disorders. So we have a sick, crazy population. So let's change this world. So first, we're going to look at the nervous system. Now, the nervous system, and we're going to talk about the central nervous system, is hugely important. It's in two parts. One part keeps you alive under stress. That's called the sympathetic or fight or flight. The other part regenerates tissue, and that's called parasympathetic, and that's also called rest, digest, repair. Now, these nervous systems are central nervous systems, and they're encased in bone, okay, the brain and spinal cord. They're so important. And they function at such a um, specific level of interaction that there's actually a barrier between the blood and the brain. So that blood-brain barrier is vital. So when you look at this, if I stand on your foot or put you under some type of physical, chemical, or emotional stress, your body's going to respond but like you're being chased by a tiger. So heart rate elevates, blood sugar elevates, and blood cholesterol elevates. Those are all stress responses. Now, I had a patient yesterday, okay, and uh, she came in with her daughter who happened to be a cardiologist, and I was talking about blood pressure because this girl had, you know, she was 72 in pain, and had elevations in blood pressure, and I said, well, you don't have high blood pressure, and they both looked at me like I had grown a third head, okay, and they said, well, yeah, your body's responded correctly based on your environment, your perception, So, and I told the the cardiologist, if I stood on your foot and took your blood pressure, would your blood pressure be higher than the average? She would say, yes. And I, okay, so do you have high blood pressure or is your blood, is your body responding to the stress of me standing on your friggin' foot? And she said, well, it's responding to the stress. Okay, good. So high blood pressure doesn't exist. It's an adaptation physical, chemical, or emotional stress. So it's foolish to treat underlying conditions without addressing the actual cause. And we're going to go in on how to gauge and what your doctor should do to check your autonomic function. And there's a thing called the heart rate variability, which is if you've ever seen a movie with a little blip thing of the heart, that blip thing is called a QRS interval. And so what we do is we measure the height, the width, and the spacing of that over about a three- to five-minute time frame, and we can identify sympathetic, parasympathetic activity, because you really, in order to have a healthy lifestyle, you need to have a healthy balance of this. And what you're going to find out is most of the time, um, dysfunction or autonomic adaptation to adapting to the physical, chemical, and emotional stress load are the real Um, symptom behind what people will call a disease. So high blood pressure. If you can find the physical, chemical, or emotional stressors, and then the blood pressure reduces or have the person deep breathe for 10 minutes and the blood pressure normalizes, um, what's broken? The answer is there's nothing broken, that the body is going to respond correctly. And then you might say, well, do fish have high blood pressure? Or do antelopes have high blood pressure? Or do beavers or bears? No. So the only animal species on the planet that can't regulate their own physiology is human? No. That's arrogance and ignorance. It's like type 2 diabetes. If, if, knowing that that's rampant and that's 95% of all diabetics on the planet are type 2 diabetes. This is a blood poisoning from a toxic deficient environment. If you change the diet... Okay, it goes away. So is type 2 diabetes a disease or an adaptation? I know, it makes you kind of think. So let's look at the University of Alabama that says if you're giving a drug to lower blood pressure, that your risk of stroke increases. Why? Because your body has to have a certain blood pressure. And it if you chemically lower that, and it the certain blood pressure is going to be different based on, your stress level and your level of health. If you ha- are chronically dehydrated, your blood cells aren't going to have enough fluid flow. The pressure has to increase because viscosity increases. If you have chronic stress, you're developing less stomach acid, so the blood cells will start to clump together in what's called roll of coin or rouleau coin formation. That means that it can't carry in a sufficient amount of oxygen or carbon dioxide. So high blood pressure is an adaptation. Now, why would taking a blood pressure drug increase risk of stroke? Well, because your body, if that pressure goes below what it thinks it should, you know, based on the health of the blood or the perception of the environment, your arteries are going to constrict, just like putting your thumb over a hose, to elevate pressure. So the blood pressure drugs actually work. However, if the high blood pressure is an adaptation to toxic, inefficient, chronically stressed blood, those arteries constrict, that's why it increases in stroke. That's right, increases in stroke. And we're gonna bring over a couple of case studies on cardiac arrhythmias, high blood pressure, pain. All of these things are adaptations. Even if you look at, um, say, the annual update of intensive and emergency medical care, this is out of 2013, they say regardless of the ideology Um, that autonomic dysfunction is the core mechanism underlying the development of multi-organ failure or of chronic disease. So it doesn't really matter. Now, they say autonomic dysfunction. I say autonomic adaptation because the body responds correctly based on the environment. So all of these diseases, blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, most thyroid disorders, fibromyalgia, these are all adaptive physiology or adaptations to a stress. So now let's look at the respiratory symptom because we're going to run through the nervous system, respiratory system, digestive tract, everything in just this little half hour. So respiration, now you've got a flat muscle on the bottom of the lungs and this pulls those lungs down almost like a syringe, drawing air in. Now the diaphragm muscle is innervated by the phrenic nerve. Now, this is how we used to remember it in school. C2, 3, C4, C4 keeps you alive, okay? Or C3, C4, C5 keeps you alive. So that's the nerve to the diaphragm. It's called a phrenic nerve. Now, this comes out of the base of the neck. So if you have a problem with the base of the neck, could this alter diaphragmatic function? Yes or yes? Absolutely, So how come pulmonologists aren't looking at the structural integrity of the neck or the cervical spine, the nerve that supplies it? Because they're not taught how to assess or correct spinal dysfunction. They're just looking at the lungs, so they know to give steroids or things that open up or bronchodilate. Now, when you look at lung function, okay, you've got this gas exchange, And there's little tiny sacs called alveoli that open and close every time you take a deep breath. And you're talking, you know, between 12 and 15 breaths per minute. And every time you breathe in, those lungs, those alveoli, expand. Every time you breathe out, they collapse. So you have this expansion and contraction. Now, if you're fully hydrated and you have good diet and nutrition, your body produces a lubricant called surfactant. which lines these alveoli and it's thin so that carbon dioxide and oxygen can transfer through the membranes. However, if you're dehydrated, your body produces a huge amount of mucus. This is why people with asthma have 10 times the amount of mucus that a person that doesn't have asthma. So when you're looking for... Um, how those lungs operate, open and close. Well let's also look at inflammation. Let's say that you get some kind of pathogen inside of there, uh, inside of the, the main tube, the trachea or the bronchus. Well, they're going to inflame. So this is called bronchitis. Itis means inflammation. So any inflammation in the lung area is a response by a pathology. Now, in crazy, stupid world, we'd give a steroid to suppress the inflammatory response or a non anti-inflammatory like Tylenol, Advil, Motrin, and Aleve. However, even antihistamines, because if there's tissue damage, histamines are going to be released. Here's the problem, and I'm talking about Tylenol, Nitex, Benadryl, all of the things that you'd give for an allergic response for the lung tissue, they lead to Alzheimer's or brain damage. They're called cholinogenic interrupters. So these are powerfully and dangerous drugs. So obviously, taking a toxic chemical that damages the physiology is not a good idea. Looking at the normal nerve supply is a good idea. Uh, I know, you want to say, duh. So I'm going to bring up a couple of of people who have had lung issues um, masquerading has other pathologies. This one patient I'm going to bring up, 55 years old, young. Now, we're talking multiple traumas, um, dental toxicities, leaky gut, and, of course, consequently is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, anxiety fatigue, sleep problems, low thyroid, adrenal fatigue, inflammatory bowel disease, fibromyalgia, chronic regional pain syndrome. I mean, a host of stuff. So you can imagine the amount of drugs he was taking. Well, for one, if you're taking multiple drugs, understand this, that each medication causes the symptom it's designed to treat. Okay, so why do we know that? Well, you've got to read the package. The side effect of cinnamon used for Parkinson's increases shaking and mass-based depra- expression. If you look at muscle relaxants, the side effect of muscle relaxants are muscle spasms. Side effect of antidepressants is suicide and suicidal thoughts. So you start looking at this. Every drug, like the side effect of antacids, okay, is increased esophageal cancer. I mean, it's insane. So when you're looking at treating an adaptive physiological response with a chemical, that's foolish because you're not addressing the underlying cause. Now, um, so look at the, for any pulmonary function, and plus, think of this, uh, you may have heard in the past that um, cancers grow in acidic medium. Well, let's do it with me. Take a deep breath in. Now blow out. What you just ri- did is you got rid of carbon dioxide, which is an acid, So one of the best alkalinization or alkalinizing processes that you have is healthy respiration. So if somebody is acidic, okay, and this means osteoporosis. Why osteoporosis? That's because the blood becomes acidic and the body goes to the bone bank to withdraw the calcium ion um, to alkalinize the system. Could that osteoporosis be from a neck problem leading to decreased diaphragmatic function, leading to decreased carbon dioxide oxygen transfer. Wow. So does that mean anytime we're presented with any type of symptom that a real doctor is going to look at the adaptive physiologic response and not treat just the symptom, but ask why is the symptom there? I know. You want to say it with me. Duh. Okay. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I mean, just take blood pressure. You know, what I'll tell people is um, what's a normal blood pressure? Typically, they'll say 120 over 80. And i say, no, sorry, that was Joint National Committee 6 that was in 1997 that came up with normal blood pressure as 120 over 80. That, that was changed in 2004 to 115 over 75. And then that was changed to 140 over 90 okay, in 2014. So blood pressure changes based on the perception of society. Now, that might sound stupid, ignorant, and um, arrogant, and you're right. It is stupid, ignorant, and arrogant. Okay, a uh, doctor is going to second-guess your physiology. But now, why do I bring up blood pressure when we're talking about lung function? Well, pretty much, your blood... Um, pressure is running blood to the lungs to do that carbon dioxide oxygen transfer. So if you don't have good pulmonary function, does that mean that the blood pressure is going to have to increase to adapt? Absolutely, yes or yes. Um, And in fact, the American College of Cardiology broke in 2017 to say, dude, we have no data to support this. We just think that 130 over 80 is better. I know, so, you know, if the medical community can't understand or get that your body is going to elevate and decrease blood pressure based on your stress level and the health of your blood. Okay, I'm going to bring up a couple of case studies that explain that. I'm also going to show what stressed blood looks like and unstressed blood looks like. And I'm going to show you a couple of examples and how to de-stress the blood from either doing IV detox or nutrients. But again, that's not addressing the underlying cause. This is just to affect the blood to assist and the body to recover. Now, let's look at where 80% of your immune system is, your gut. Your gut is an ecosystem. But we have to look at how the body actually works. Because when you're looking at um, digestion, it begins with the brain. Okay, if you smell food, Instantly, your olfactory bulb recognizes that, and it's going to produce a certain amount of acid in the stomach to break down that, that digestive process. So um, Pavlov, you know, the guy that rang a bell and would make a dog salivate, he did tons of experiments of opening up a dog's stomach and measuring the acid. If a dog smelled uh, chicken, produced an acid. Lamb, totally different acid. Beef, totally different acid. So human beings are the same way. So when you smell food, your body produces an acid. This is why we ask our patients not to drink any water a half hour before a meal, during a meal, or a half hour after, because that dilutes the acid. Now, you swallow the food, you masticate it up, it goes down the esophagus into the stomach. On the top of the stomach is a muscle called the lower esophageal sphincter that tightens up and keeps that acid inside of the stomach so that lower esophageal sphincter tightens up on presence of acid. And again, let's bring up stupid. Okay, if people have reflux because they're diluting the acid, they're given an antiacid, which actually increases esophageal cancers because it loosens up that lower esophageal sphincter. makes you feel comfortable, but it causes damage long-term. So in normal digestion, Food gets in the stomach. The lower esophageal sphincter tightens up. sloshes just round in there. So the acid breaks the proteins to amino acids, and then the the food is pushed through the next area of the intestine, the start of the small intestine called the duodenum, and this is where fats are broken down. So the gallbladder recognizes fat in there, contracts to break down and emulsify the fat using the bile. And the pancreas also secretes pancreatic enzymes and bicarb to alkalinize that acidity, that acid food coming out of the stomach, and so it starts its pathway through the small intestine. So this way, the fats are broken down to fatty acids by the gallbladder. The proteins are broken to amino acids by the stomach. Carbohydrates are broken down to usable sugars by the mouth. Brilliant, and all this stuff gets through that intestinal tract Um, in order to absorb all of those nutrients so your body can regenerate healthy tissue. Now, the small intestine that leads down, because it has that acidity, changes and gets more alkaline, different nutrients are absorbed along different areas. This is why, when doctors do gastric bypasses, that people end up with chronic nutrient deficiencies, because they're bypassing areas of the intestinal tract where certain nutrients would be absorbed then all this stuff gets dumped into the large intestine. And the large intestine is amazing. This was where B vitamins are produced. This is, I mean, just amazing. It's like an ecosystem. You should have around 30,000 different types of bacteria in there. And this is where 80% of the immune system. So does that mean that anything that damages the bacteria damages your immune system? Absolutely So is this why antibiotics that are inside of bread that's sprayed with glyphosates or antibiotics that are given for a a urinary tract infection actually damages the ecosystem? Absolutely. Or an antibiotic for a sore throat that damages the ecosystem? Absolutely. And that's why we're looking at increased intestinal permeability or what a leaky gut is. Now... Um, we also look at what cholesterol is. See, 80% of your overall cholesterol is produced by the liver, okay, and it's used for um, hormone production and for anti-inflammatories. In fact, cholesterol is 50% of the overall weight of the brain, okay, and it's the precursor to every glucocorticosteroid, glucocorticoid, or sex hormone that your adrenal glands make. So, and there's only one type of cholesterol. There's two type of protein carriers. Um, low density lipoprotein is a carrier that idiot doctors will call bad cholesterol. HDL or high density lipoprotein is a protein carrier that carries the same cholesterol um, to the liver for storage or away from the site of industry or injury. So people will see high LDL levels as bad and high HDL levels as good. It just has to do with tissue damage or stress response. And in fact, if you take a drug to lower cholesterol, you increase heart failure and hardening of the arteries according to the expert review of clinical pharmacology. So that's pretty stupid too. And then if you're taking cholesterol-lowering drugs, you're talking low heart muscle function and increased plaquing. And cholesterol is a vital component to the brain. And in fact, they found that Alzheimer's disease is associated with low cholesterol. That's right. Now, when we look at the small intestine, and this is huge because we want to cover this, not just the small intestine, Um, but pancreatic function and pancreatic enzymes and the function of the gallbladder. If your gallbladder has actually been removed, you have to increase your fats because gallbladders um, literally store and concentrate bile. And if you're missing your gallbladder, and I recommend you seeing our entire series on the gallbladder on what you have to do because you've got this bile that can be ridiculously caustic that can actually start to bore a hole in the duodenum, creating a duodenal ulcer. And also, it's going to make you fat deficient, so it's going to be harder for you to produce certain hormones. So there's a lot of negative effects from having the gallbladder taken out. And I've never heard one person come in with an intelligent um, uh, advice from their doctor that removed the gallbladder. Typically, they're not going to tell them that it's, it's vital that they increase their fat intake in order to survive. Now, let's look at what you can do to clean the blood. So now we've walked through the entire gastrointestinal tract system. Okay, we've looked at the ecosystem that, that's the intestinal tract. Okay, even the rectum and the prostate and reproductive organs, all of that productivity. Um, has to do with, again, with the nervous system. Um, When we look at the health of the pelvis, the prostate, all of these organ tissues are on the bottom or underside of this pelvic. So what if you have some damage to the pelvis? Let's say you have a sedentary lifestyle. That's gonna destabilize the pelvis and compromise the nerve supply. Let's say that you're exposed to uh, environmental pesticides. Most pesticides are estrogen-based that will cause the uh, ovaries, uterus, to malfunction. It will cause the prostate to swell up. So does that mean that that since so many women are having excessive bleeding and fibroids and hysterectomies and so many males are having prostate problems and prostate swelling and, and benign prostatic hypertrophy, I mean, all of these organ system dysfunctions Could it be from a mechanical distortion of the pelvis? Absolutely. Could it be from environmental toxic um, exposure, from pesticides or antibiotics? Absolutely. What about um, estrogens or uh, synthetic hormones? Absolutely. Uh, Microwaving in plastic? Absolutely. So, see, anyone presented with a dysfunction, and there's erectile dysfunction, there's all sorts of um, sexual dysfunctions in the female and male, how come they're not looking at the mechanical distortion of S2, S3, S4, keeps the ding-dong off the floor, and that's, that means the pelvic nerve supply, and this is the mnemonic I've taught, taught all of my, my student doctors, so they know that the sacrum supplies that pelvic floor, but also look at the pesticides or toxic exposure. See, now that we've gone through a rough overview of the body, you're going to start to look at, oh my gosh, disease doesn't really exist. It comes from deficiency or toxicity. And the the challenge is, is a lot of the symptoms that you're presenting with, with the most ignorant medical system the world has ever seen. And you might say, well, when they were doing the bleeding back in the 1300s and injecting mercury, wasn't that stupid? And I'd say, you know, you're right. Except they didn't have any data to support any other method. So the mercury or quicksilver and the bleeding that was used for thousands of years by the Egyptians, they just did it with a dogmatic approach. um, I'm going to suggest that today is much more ignorant because alternatives... And the toxicity and damage of their therapies is so apparent in the literature that unless you're blind and stupid and, and not willing to read about other therapies, then if you're choosing to do toxic, uh, ineffective therapies that perpetuate disease on your patients, then you suck as being a doctor. So uh, obviously, since the information is out there But the dogmatic approach of doing this this way all the time without looking at consequences, that's foolish. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, every child on the planet should have 72 different doses of 17 different vaccines by the time they're 18. And every adult should have the 15 adult mandated vaccines and flu shots every year, and then when your blood pressure elevates, you get the beta blocker or diuretic or ACE inhibitor, and if you have reflux, you take the antacid or the omeprazole. If you have anxiety or stress or depression, you take the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And so what do we end up? We end up with 54% of our children having a chronic illness or disease. We end up with a one-in-one ratio of dementia. That means 100% of Americans are going to get dementia, Okay, and we end up with the most drug population of the planet's ever seen. That's foolish. So if you get a doctor that's prescribing you a drug and they will not tell you why, or they make up stuff and say it's hereditary, really? Okay, can you name any relatives that you have that do not have this condition? Yeah, so then you're going to look at genetic and genetic expression. So how come some of your relatives express the gene that caused the XYZ disease, okay, and I mean it could be type 2 diabetes, it could be anxiety, it could be bunions, it could be blood pressure, it could be inflammatory bowel disease, okay, I guarantee you that your great-grandparents didn't have it and your great-great-grandparents didn't have it, but your great-great-grandparents were wackos because they only ate healthy organic non-processed food, why? Because they called that food, they didn't call it organic food, It's all the shit they had to eat. So have an appreciation for your body. Change your doctor to one that looks at your adaptive physiological presentation, has not pathology, and they're going to look at the root cause. They're going to check the nervous system. They're going to ask important questions like how many bowel movements a day do you get. They're going to ask if your sleep patterns are interrupted, what your diet and nutrition is like, okay, Do you have anxiety, stress, or depression? Why, because anxiety, stress, depression, and impulse control are frontal lobe dysfunctions. It's not a brain chemistry issue. This is a stress issue or a movement deficiency disorder based on cerebellar stimulation. So there's solutions and causes to virtually every disease out there. But if you're treating the symptom with a toxic chemical, your end result will not work out well. Does that make sense? So this is a rough overview of how your body works, okay? And it's pretty much Hippocrates was right. Um, in in Greek, um, he said, first do no harm. What he really meant, if he was speaking modern day, guys, the body is a brilliant design. Just don't screw it up, okay? That's what he really meant. So this is Dr. John Bergman, your health advocate. We're going to have this tonight live on Facebook And next week it will be posted so you can check all the references and everything else. God bless you, and I love you.